in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. So if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word for us today. You can be seated. Well, we find ourselves um, continuing on in the third week where we've been studying through a section of 1 Peter that specifically tells us how we are to respond to suffering in our lives. Christians who remain faithful to Jesus uh, will expect to experience suffering. So if we're living obediently, some sort of friction is going to happen. It was certainly uh, the case in Peter's day. His audience are Christians who are trying to live faithfully. He calls them sojourners in a world that is hostile to the gospel. And as they're living obediently, they're being persecuted, and Peter is calling on them to continue to live faithfully. And last week, Scott walked us through the previous passage in which we were told how we can suffer well. And we learned about some, some do's and don'ts. We shouldn't uh, return evil for evil. Uh, we shouldn't uh, find ourselves participating in the same cycle of sin that caused our persecution. So we shouldn't return evil for evil. Instead, we should bless people. And in doing that, in suffering well, we create an opportunity for people who, who are actually persecuting us uh, to have an opportunity to receive Christ, to have an opportunity to repent and to see the gospel lived out. We're encouraged to take on, in other words, a meekness in suffering that we see in Jesus when he was suffering. At the same time, while we're supposed to be meek, in other words, re- returning not evil for evil but blessing, that's the meekness of it, we're also called to be bold. We're told to be prepared. To, to give a reason for the hope that we have. And that means Christians, while they're trying to love their enemy, they're also ready to share the reason that they're behaving in this unusual way. And so that gets us to where, uh, where we are. Now, it, it's, it's a big call to suffer well. Like, it, it's easy to explain, I suppose, with do's and don'ts, Right? But it's, easy, it's maybe easier said than done. <laughs> and so now we transition. We've found ourselves in the next session, section, and this is uh, where we get the power from which we're supposed to find the ability to do this. So if we're going to suffer well, we need to look at Jesus, and we need to understand some things about what he has done for us and, and, and what his suffering has accomplished for us And then we can understand some things about our own suffering and what Christ does in that. So if we broke the whole thing up into two parts, it would be what did Jesus accomplish 
in his suffering, and then the second part would be our suffering and what Christ does with us in it, okay? So Jesus' suffering and our suffering, okay? So first, let's talk about what Jesus accomplished uh, in his, his suffering. So the first part of this passage says, for Christ also suffered. So he's linked, the for and the also is linking what he's already said. He's saying for, in other words, live this way, suffer well, don't return evil for evil because Christ also suffered. So he's bringing Jesus in and he's saying, Christ, you're suffering, Christ also suffered. He's saying that's where we're gonna get the strength. Now, last week we focused somewhat on the qualities of suffering. We talked about how we should suffer. But this week in this passage, we're gonna talk mostly about what Jesus' suffering actually did. And that's an important distinction to make between the way that we suffer and the way Jesus suffered because um, we, we can look to Jesus and try to emulate his suffering in some way, but we would fall short if we just said Jesus is just an example for us. Jesus' suffering is unique from our suffering. So we can emulate his weakness. We can bless those. We can say, forgive, uh, Father, forgive them uh, to, about our enemies. But if we just left it at that, Jesus are, is our example, then we would be missing a key part. And so we need to talk about what Jesus actually did. Not just our example, but he accomplished something. So we're gonna talk through this passage about what did Jesus accomplish here. Number one is Jesus was truly righteous. It says Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter calls us to suffer well for doing good. He, he, he talks about the idea, it's not, a, not a, a, some important thing that we suffer when we did the wrong thing. If you commit a crime and you go to jail, that's not, suffer, that's not persecution, that's not suffering in the way that he's talking about. But he's saying you can do well and still suffer. You can be right and be doing something obedient to God and suffer for it, and there's a way we behave in that. But only Jesus was truly righteous. Even when we do good, and suffer for doing good, none of us could say that we truly are, in the fullest sense, good. And so none of us could really say that we are so innocent that we deserve no suffering in our life whatsoever. And that's because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned, but not Jesus. Jesus was completely righteous, completely sinless in every way. He had opportunities to sin, that's what, that's what the whole temptation in the desert is about, Jesus being tempted and saying no to that temptation, choosing God first so that he could be declared righteous. Having, having been through temptation, he's still righteous. So Jesus is the only one who could say, I am suffering and I do not deserve it at all. He is the righteous who is suffering for the unrighteous, which brings us to the second part. Jesus suffered as a substitute for sins, it says, it says Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. And that means when Jesus died, he was an innocent person, a righteous person who died in our place. First John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A propitiation is an atoning substitute and Jesus bore our sins when he was on the cross. He suffered and died in our place. 
Uh, earlier in First Peter, Jesus is compared to a lamb without blemish. And that's bringing back imagery from the Old Testament in which they would sacrifice animals to atone for sins. And that animal had to be without blemish. In other words, if it was deformed, if it was sick in some way, if it didn't visibly look right, then it would not be worthy to be a sacrifice. And it wasn't that uh, killing these animals was literally atoning for their sin, but it was looking forward to something. It was showing us and showing the Old Testament uh, people of God that Jesus would come and he would have no sin. He would be the lamb without blemish. And because he was righteous, he now is the worthy substitute. And that means when he's on the cross, he is taking the punishment that we deserve on himself. God looks at him and looks at him as if he is the one who committed all of our sins and punishes him accordingly. So he died in our place. He was a substitute for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Next, Jesus' suffering brings us to God, right? The, unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Now, we could, real, we could gloss over that real quickly, but that's a big deal right there. He, he suffered for us so that he could bring us to God. The substitutionary death of Jesus, that propitiation, reconciles us to God, brings us to God. Sin is described in Scripture as creating a separation between us and God. That's why Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden right after they sin. And forevermore, God's people are no longer God's people, right? After that, we're born at enmity with God. We're born kicking against everything that God wants, wants for us. We don't want the relationship with God. We don't have a relationship with God. But what Jesus did brings us back to God. And what that means is if a person trusts in what Jesus did on the cross and repents of their sins, they will be reconciled to God and brought into a relationship with him. And there's so many things, like there's a little bitty phrase, but there's so much packed into that. The real quick, we're not gonna camp out on this the whole morning, but there's uh, real quick to just go through a bunch. Regeneration. In, in Christ, we are born again. We are made into a new creation. We're given a new heart. Conversion. God actually grants us in our new hearts to be able to respond to what Jesus has done. Justification. God looks at us and declares us right based on what Jesus did. If we trust in Jesus, if we repent of our sins, God looks at us and says, you are now righteous. You are justified. You are legally uh, uh, forgiven you are legally good. More than that, though, there's another word, imputation, which means not only do we get our sins forgiven, but Jesus gives us his righteousness so that when God sees us, not only is he saying, I'm just not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna pretend that never happened. He looks at us as if we had perfectly obeyed the law in every way. We receive Jesus' righteousness. It's credited to us. On top of that, adoption. We don't just get a pardon and get out of it. We get brought into the family. We become sons and daughters of the God of the universe through Christ. Sanctification. God loves us the way that we are, right? He brings us in. He forgives us even though we've sinned. But he loves us too much to leave us the way that we were when he, when he brought us in, right? He's going to work on us through the Holy Spirit 
to conform us to the image of Jesus, which brings us to another one. We, we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ dwelling within us in the Holy Spirit, equipping us to do all that we're commanded to do. And we could spend a whole morning, we could spend multiple mornings, weeks and weeks, talking about all the different things that are packed into the idea of being brought to God. And that would not be time ill-spent, right? It's a lot packed in there. We sum it up with this beautiful word called salvation. In salvation, a person can be made right with God, receive all of those benefits. And why? It's all because of what Jesus did. Not only that, in this passage, we see that Jesus' suffering was final and it doesn't need to be repeated. Christ suffered once for sin. This is a new concept to the Jews because sacrifices had to be made continually, yearly, more than yearly, really. Anytime you did something wrong, you needed to take a sacrifice. And then there would even be a big summary sacrifice to catch all the ones that anybody might not have thought of. And the, even the priests needed to do a sacrifice and they needed to be included in the whole thing too. So it was just an endless cycle of atoning for sins and then sinning again and then atoning for sins and then sinning again and bloodshed and all of those things. But that's not what happened with Jesus. Because Jesus was righteous and because he is God, his death was sufficient for all of our sins. And so when he made that sacrifice, he was done. In Hebrews, it talks about uh, Jesus being our priest and priests stand up to do their work in the Old Testament, but it says that Jesus sat down. In other words, when he said, it is finished on the cross, it was finished, it's done. And that means if you are a child of God this morning, though you may fail, though you may sin, and you're gonna keep coming back and confessing that sin to God, you don't need Jesus to die on the cross again for you. Doesn't need to happen. He did everything necessary for your salvation on the cross. He suffered once for sins. And finally, in, the, in this first part of this, is Jesus' suffering eventually led to his exaltation. So the, uh, Peter is coming to us, uh, coming to his, his hearers in this context of suffering, and he's trying to show them and we're gonna see this more in a minute, but he's trying to show them that Jesus suffered and then was exalted. And that in a different way, not in the exact same way that Jesus was, but in a different way, we too, when we suffer, it is for a time, and then we will be exalted. But look at verse 21. It's, uh, sorry, it, it says, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected, him, uh, subjected to him. So Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, right? He was resurrected. He, he was seen by many people. And then one day he ascended into heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of God. Now, this interesting language he uses here, he says at the end, powers having been subjected to him. We've spent weeks and weeks trekking through uh, the previous parts of 1 Peter, and we were in a long section about how we're called to be subject to all kinds of different institutions, right? We've talked a lot about how we're called to be subject, and in this one it says everything is subject to Jesus. 
He was raised, he was exalted, he's sitting at the right hand of God, and he is Lord over all. A a, a similar passage to this would be uh, in Philippians chapter two, right? says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus suffered, but now he is exalted. And this is meant to give us hope. He's exalted and everything is subject to him. Angels, spiritual, spiritual world is subject to Jesus. Authorities, governments are subject to Jesus. The hearts and minds of men are subject to Jesus. The, the, the physical world itself is subject to Jesus. And he's our savior. It's meant to give us hope. So if we're suffering, we can look to him and know that he is exalted. In Jesus' suffering, not only do we see an example to emulate. Jesus was meek when he was suffering. He was obedient to the end. We we should emulate that. But Jesus actually supplied us with the power that we have in a new life to suffer well. He gave us everything that we need to be able to, to do what the previous passage had told us that we need to do. That's what he accomplished on the cross. He gave us salvation. He empowers us. And now he, he sits enthroned over all. That's the first point. The second point is about, I'm sure what everybody, you know, stuck out to everybody when they read this passage was what in the world? Is he talking about spirits and did nobody notice that? The spirits in prison? We are gonna talk about that. Just so you know. Thank you, Scott, for taking vacation during this <laughs> I read a couple of commentaries that said that that this is maybe the most obscure and difficult passage in the New Testament. Um, So (laughs) bring your expectations down, folks, okay? Okay. (laughs) Um, The the deal here is, let's let's talk, first let's talk about what uh, the broader picture is that when, when an author uses an example or an illustration or refers to something, they're not just trying to create a a big discussion for us to have at the picnic in 30 minutes or whatever, right? They're not just trying to stump us. I'm convinced that when Peter's audience read this, they were like, oh yeah, that. And that it didn't sidetrack them. But I I don't know about you, but like if you've ever read this, this probably sidetracked you big time. I'm gonna admit when Scott told me what passage I was getting, I got majorly sidetracked by this for a while, okay? So it's easy for us to get Uh, really down in the weeds about what's going on in this passage, but we can't forget that there's a reason that he's putting it there, and that's more important than what's happening in the passage because it's uh, it's meant to support it. So what he's talking about is a real thing. This is not just, you know, it is something that we can know something about. But the point is, is, is not just to know this little bit of information. He's using it to support what he's actually talking about. Uh, here's an example of like how this might work. Um, if I was preaching a sermon highlighting the way uh, that we chase after everything but Jesus, but that leads to our harm, right, then uh, a, a similar kind of example for us might be um, if I said, you know, it's kind of like when we chase things that aren't Jesus and uh, it leads to our harm, it's kind of like you're chasing that cheese down the hill. You, you don't know what I'm talking about? Um, See, if you, if you lived in England, I guess, or certain parts of England, you might know about the infamous uh, Cooper's Hill cheese rolling and wake, 
which has been going on for hundreds of years, in which people get kind of sloshed, and then they roll a big, like, nine-pound wheel of cheese down a 200-yard steep hill, and people just go tumbling after it. This happens every year. It's like next Monday, I think. So if, you're, if your Memorial Day plans, you know, haven't happened uh, yet, you can, uh, you, maybe you can still buy tickets. But you see, like, if, if, we talk, if I was to bring that up in a Bible study and just use that without any kind of explanation, then I'd immediately get, if, if I was in a youth group, for sure, so he'd be like, hang on, <laughs> what cheese, where, why would be the big thing, why? Uh, and we would get so hung up on my bad example of the cheese rolling in wake that we wouldn't ever get to what I'm actually talking about. And, and that's why we're going to spend a moment talking about what this is, and then we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about why he's using it, okay? So, big question. Number one is, what's happening when he says... So look back at at verse 18. It says, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. We'll stop there. We'll catch the baptism thing in a minute. Okay? Um, So the question is, what is happening? Now, there are several options that people have talked about over the years. So, number one, are these angels? Are they demons? It says spirits. Is that what they mean? Um, are the, so, that's the who. Who is he talking about? Uh, is it the spirits of people who are in hell, if it says spirits in prison? Is it the souls of Old Testament believers who hadn't entered paradise? Those are, I think, the three big things people talked about. There are many, many others. Bring me your uh, conclusions at the picnic, I guess. Um, <laughs> what what is Jesus preaching? That's another question, not just to who, but what is it that Jesus is preaching? Is he preaching some kind of like uh, post-mortem salvation offer? Like, is this a secondary chance for people to repent and believe? Is this a general proclamation over his victory over sin and death? What is it that he's preaching? And the big question would be like, when is he preaching this? Because it talks about him being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, and then it talks about him going. So does that mean that it's post-resurrection Jesus? Is it post-crucifixion, pre-resurrection Jesus? Is it something else? Is this something that happened long ago? So lots of options. All right, um, so w- here, here's a couple things I think should be excluded. Number one is the Old Testament saints idea. Some have, some have said in the past that this might be people who believed in God and were faithful to God in the Old Testament, but they were sort of held in waiting until Jesus came. And then Jesus goes and he preaches and then they're released. I would say there's no other places that would make us think that somehow the benefits of salvation are like withheld from Old Testament believers. Um, you know, the, like, the, like in Jesus' parable, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, like uh, Lazarus is in what they call Abraham's bosom and it seems to be a good place, paradise, that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I think that's probably one we would exclude. Um, and then uh, spirits of people in hell to give them a second chance. So like, um, did Jesus go to hell? That's a big question, right? And I would say I would avoid thinking that that was it, uh, basically because when Jesus talks to the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think it would be a bad idea for us to create a doctrine 
based on a really obscure passage where there's no other scriptural support anywhere else. And if we don't see anywhere else like kind of talking about this, it'd be better to assume that that, that excludes it. So I'd say not, uh, not some kind of like Jesus in hell giving people a second chance or something like that. So what is it? Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what I think it is, and there's maybe another option there, but both of them, I think, support the rest of the context of what Peter's saying, and I think the reason that he's doing it. So I think that the context that follows uh, gives us the key to what is happening. It says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, all right? So that, that links it in to a narrative, I think, that tells us Peter's mind on it, that this has to do with the days of Noah. These, these people that he's preaching to didn't obey formally. So my view is that when he says alive in the spirit, it's not a chronological mind shift, it's like a domain mind shift that he's making. And so being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, and then the movement there is in which, so in the spirit, not chronologically here, but in the spirit, Jesus went, okay? And he proclaimed to the, to the spirits who are in prison, and I think that that means the spirits who are now in prison. The, the, the souls of the people who formerly did not obey during the days of Noah, who are now in prison, in other words, now in hell, Jesus had gone in the spirit in the days of Noah and is preaching through Noah as Noah is living obediently and witnessing for God. It's showing that Jesus is actively involved even in the witness of Noah in his days, pre-incarnate Jesus actively preaching, literally to the point that it's saying that he is preaching to those people. And you might say, well, it says souls in prison. That sounds like he's going to hell. And I would say, well, I could say I met President Biden in 2012. And you might say, well, he wasn't, he wasn't President Biden in 2012, but you would know what I meant, and it wouldn't be incorrect for me to say, right? Just because he holds the office now and didn't hold it then, it would not be incorrect for me to say that. So I would say this would be maybe read, um, the spirits who are now in prison, it's that kind of time frame, Jesus preaching to them through Noah. Um, Another option would be if spirits were not about people, that it would be maybe fallen angels in, in Noah's day. I just, there's nowhere else in the Bible that talks about them being disobedient in that time, and that's why I would be inclined to think, uh, think that it's the spirit of the people who were disobedient in the days of Noah, because he goes on to that point. So why, now, now that now we kind of got there, why is he saying it? Well, there's a lot we could say about it. Um, but I believe that he's linking Noah into what Jesus has done in Jesus' suffering. I think he's linking that together. And then in a moment, we'll talk about how through the baptism comment, he's linking us into it. Look at the structure just for a second. Look at, look at verses 18 to 22. And you see verses 18 through 20, uh, the beginning of 20 at least, or no, 19. Uh, he's talking about Jesus suffering right? And then we move on to this, this part in the middle about everything with Noah and then baptism, which links it to us. And then he comes back around to what we've already talked about in verse 21, and he talks about Jesus' exaltation. And what he's doing there is he's placing Noah, and I think us, in the middle of the narrative of Jesus' suffering and exaltation as a means to encourage us and provide us another example of someone who suffered. There's comparison to be made between Noah 
and us, and Noah and Peter's original audience. And here are a few ways that we, we see that. Number one, uh, like Noah, we live in a world that is hostile to the things of God. So Noah says in Genesis chapter six uh, that man's thoughts and heart were on evil continually and only Noah had followed God. Noah's the only one following God. Everybody else is continually on evil to the point that it says that God was grieved that he had made man, right? And now he intends to send a flood. Peter's audience uh, are also a faithful minority in a culture that did not share their faith and were hostile to their faith and he calls them to live as sojourners. So he's drawing a parallel between Noah and between Peter's audience and us. So he's saying, like Noah, we live in the world that's hostile to the things of God. Next one, like Noah, we will suffer. Noah felt the social and emotional and spiritual pressure of acting obediently to God in a hostile culture. So, so Noah was suffering. Imagine, it took decades uh, to build uh, the ark, maybe longer. And so he is doing this thing in a time when there was no rain and there had never been a flood before and he's talking about a flood. Imagine over that time how much uh, he would have felt discouraged or alone uh, or defeated or maybe at times potentially questioning God uh, and what was going on. He felt that. He felt the suffering. We also, and Peter's audience, will Feel that pressure. It may not be the same way that Noah did, but we'll feel it. If you're acting obediently to Christ, there's gonna be friction. There's gonna be difficulty. There's gonna be people that, that are hostile to the things of God, and you'll feel that pressure. And we suffer, when we suffer the right way, um, uh, it provides something for us. That's the next parallel. Like Noah, our suffering provides a testimony. In 2 Peter, and this is another reason uh, that that I think it supports the way I'm saying uh, this connection between Jesus going and preaching is in 2 Peter, Noah gets called a herald. It uses the same word uh, for preaching as Jesus preaching here. G uh, Noah is called a preacher. So when Noah is building the ark, he's not just silently building the ark, he's telling people about what is going on. And obviously this big physical thing that he's doing along with his words provide an opportunity for people, provide a witness to what's going on and an encouragement for people to turn from their wickedness, right? Uh, even if it doesn't lead to their salvation, uh, he is witnessing, he is proclaiming who God is and the dangers of what people are doing in, in, his, in his obedience there. They saw him building the ark. And if we suffer the right way, we're gonna provide an opportunity for those who are, who are sinning towards us to repent and put their trust in Jesus. It'll give us an opportunity. And I would say that, I'll, I'll say this, um, even though the context here uh, is, is more like a persecution suffering, that was the context for, for Peter's uh, readers, I think that any kind of suffering, as long as it's not like being punished for a, a sin that we've committed, right, being, like being punished for a crime, we wouldn't call that suffering in that, but anytime we're, we're suffering in any way, aren't we given an opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus because we have hope in him, right? And, and so I, I think even if you, you might be sitting in this room saying, I've never been 
persecuted for my faith. I might have been uncomfortable a couple of times, but I'm not, I don't know that I'm willing to call that the kind of suffering Peter's talking about. I would say that maybe not. But anytime Christians suffer at all, it provides us an opportunity to share. It provides us an opportunity to give reason for the hope that we have. Now, here's a, uh, here's a freebie for you, okay? I, I wouldn't want to build a giant theology on this, but it only says that Noah was the righteous one in that passage, right? But eight people were, got on the boat, right? God tells us that he intends for his, his sons and their wives to get on the boat, but is it possible that Noah's faithful obedience lasted for a time in which his children did not share his faith in what God was going to do? Is it possible that he was building the ark by himself for a while? Or that he was pleading with one or some of his sons to, to join in and, and get on the ark when it would happen? I don't know, but it's possible. It's possible that his faithful obedience to the Lord, even when he was going against the grain from the rest of his culture, may have at some point won over some of his kids. So parents, I would say you have, a, you have an opportunity in your parenting. It might be a long road. Okay, it, like it might have been 100 years, right, <laughs> that he was building this ark. A long time that Noah was faithfully obeying. And it says his kids got on eventually. It's not a promise, but it says it's, it's not a quick, it's not necessarily a quick thing. Peter's message is con- consistent here with the rest of, of 1 Peter. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our suffering is for a purpose and it's to show people who God is. Now, next thing in here is, like Noah, we have the spirit of Christ working within us, affecting the spiritual and unseen along with our witness. So, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is involved in Noah's preaching to the point that we would say that Jesus is preaching to the spirits who are now in prison. So Jesus is actively working alongside, with, and through Noah in the midst of his suffering to proclaim to these people. This is true for us. You have the Holy Spirit. If you've trusted in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And so the command to suffer well is not just here. Here's a written list of things you need to do. Now go do it. And God just kind of throws us into the pool uh, without any help, right? That's not what's happening. He's saying, I am with you. I am always with you right? I'm, I was trying to think of an analogy for this. I could only think about bicycles, but eventually you grow up and you don't use your parents to ride your bike. But I've taught four kids how to ride a bike in some form or fashion over the years. And there's something that gives you the confidence that knows that the parent is like right there with you, like running and huffing and puffing, trying to keep up with you on the bike. And the minute that you know that they're gone, what happens? You just fall over, like the minute that you see. And of course, this breaks down bad, so don't go there, okay? God's with us all the time. He's with us. He's in us. He's powerfully working within us in ways that we don't even see or comprehend. I dare say Noah may not have been aware of exactly what God through the Spirit was doing in the day, but it was being done. 
God is working in you, and when you suffer, whether it's from persecution or anything else in your life, God's Spirit works in you as well. And finally, like Jesus and like Noah, we will be exalted. So the suffering, this is another thing to, uh, meant to encourage Christians. The suffering will last for a while, but something better is coming. He said, Noah's suffering lasted, and then he was saved from the flood, right? He, he got on the ark, the floods came, he escaped the judgment. In Christ, we escape the judgment, and I think that's why he brings baptism in this. He's bringing the, the current audience back into the picture. He's not just talking about Noah now. He's talking about all of us. He says, baptism which corresponds this now saves you. Don't get too hung up on that, okay? He says immediately after, not like removing dirt from the body. So it's not like going to literally cleanse you in some way. He's saying it's a witness. It's an appeal to a good conscience. In other words, if you are a person living in that day, to be baptized would be to align yourself to everything that was against the culture that they were living in. It would be to put them under danger. It makes me think of the people of Yemen that we prayed about just a few minutes ago. If, a per, if one of the Christians in Yemen got baptized, do you think they would get baptized and not mean it and not really desire to align themselves with Christ? Baptism is an appeal to a good conscience. In other words, it is an outward symbol of a spiritual reality that you have been transformed by the grace of God. And to align yourself visibly and publicly with Jesus is to put yourself at odds with the world. It's to guarantee suffering. The analogy he's making here is through water. And he's saying Noah was lifted up through the water, through the waters of judgment. We go down. When someone's being baptized, you put them down in the water. It's like death. And with death comes judgment. And we come out of that judgment unscathed because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Not only that, we have been saved from our sins. You can rest here right now. If you trust in Jesus, you are saved from your sins. But we're not fully saved because Jesus hasn't fully returned. And so whether you die before he comes back or if he comes back at the picnic this afternoon, all right, we will be completely and finally saved and your suffering will end. So brothers and sisters, this morning, whatever you've gone through this week, you can rest assured that if you have put your trust in Jesus, as Peter calls it later in this book, what you are dealing with might not always feel it, but in reality it is a light momentary affliction. And it is nothing to be compared with what's coming. How can we be sure? Because Jesus, back to the, now back to the end of the passage, he is resurrected, he has gone into heaven, he is at the right hand of God, and all things are subject to him, and he's the one who's gonna do it. Not you and me, it's not on our power, it's not on political power, it's not on any of those kinds of things, it's on Christ, because all things are subject to him. So what do you do? Number one is you turn to Christ. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, you need to get on the boat because the judgment is coming. It says God waited patiently in the days of Noah. He is waiting patiently for you, but that patience only lasts so long, and someday it will come. It's been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But you have been offered in God's grace salvation through Christ. Turn to him. And finally, I would say, endure with hope. 
endure with hope. He's coming. Light momentary affliction. Keep your eyes on him. Ask yourself, just like we read earlier, um, that we should hope in God. Why are you cast down, O oh, my soul? Why are you a turmoil within me? Hope in God. He will do it. He'll bring us through.